Gracious Heavenly Father, we do just bring glory to your name. What a marvelous thing it is to just have opportunity to set aside an hour where we can come together corporately and study these things that are so very clear in your word, and yet so often we we just don't see on the surface. We have to dig beneath that surface to discover them. We pray that the result of our time together in these Wednesday evenings will be a time of real growth in the lives of each one. And we praise you for what we know you're going to accomplish, and we pray that you will work through our lives some of these things that you want to teach us tonight, and we'll give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just remind you that the Word of God is very clear, though in various places uses different terminology that there are, uh, or there is, I should say, a residue from the old life that is carried into the new. It's for that reason that, as an example, the Apostle Paul had to say in both the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians to put off the old man with its deeds and to put on the new man. Putting off, putting on. And uh, it's important that we realize that that is a a function of our Christian life. It is a part of the whole process of growth. There are things in your life that you discover from time to time are, are, are carried over from the old life. Things that you did habitually in the old life. You probably never thought a whole lot about those things being necessarily sinful, uh, though they were sinful. They were a part of the sinful pattern of that old life. But when you became a Christian and God was dealing with some of the uh, biggies in your life, you know, uh, some of the big things that you were facing in terms of, of crisis and uh, in terms of your wrestling with growth, um, these things were carried on without you thinking about it. I'm not talking here about the kind of thing where you sit down and say, God, I don't care what you say, I'm going to go do this. I'm not talking about the, the kinds of things where there is a rebellion or a defiance. There are a lot of things like that in Scripture as well. But I'm talking about the things that are just sort of natural. Natural because they were a part of the natural man. And uh, they become a part of our carnality as far as our Christian lives are concerned. And the Holy Spirit may gently tap us on the shoulder concerning some of these things, and we hardly recognize that these things are very serious because we're just so accustomed to doing them. And maybe if the Holy Spirit does convict us, we, we have some regrets, but the next day we find ourselves doing the same thing again. They're very, very subtle. And uh, what we want to try to establish here is the changing of life's patterns. We want to begin to, to think like a new man instead of like an old man. And we want to begin to see life that way. And that way we won't so easily slip into these these habitual things in our life. And so we, we talked as an example about the subtlety of pride, just simply an independent spirit, an idea that we can even uh, do good things, uh, do charitable things, uh, do spiritual things in the energy of the flesh. Of course, if we think that way, we're foolish because God can't bless pride, and that's what it is. Without me, you can do nothing. And so, therefore, we need to learn humility, which is the opposite, and that is a totally dependent attitude. So that we say with the Apostle Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God, only that. 
And without Christ, I can do nothing. And we recognize that, then we begin to walk in humility and lowliness of mind rather than in pride. Another one we talked about was presumption. Presumption is simply that attitude that um, God's Word says one thing, but I think another. (laughs) Again, it's not willfully saying, I'm just going to go out and disobey God. It's just simply that you read something in Scripture, you know it's there. But in this particular instance, this is the exception of all time. And I'm going to do it this way, even though God says do it this way, because my circumstances are totally different than God knows about. See, that's that's the attitude of presumption. And when we presume, then we violate God's word. We disobey God's word. And there's a lot in scripture concerning presumption. We talked about uh, the matter of perfunctoriousness, the idea of doing things mechanically. Uh, Before we did spiritual ritual mechanically, Uh, just because we were supposed to do it. If we were Catholic, we went to Mass and we knelt when we were supposed to and said something when we were supposed to and counted our beads when we were supposed to and, you know, did all of those things. And we went through that routine and we became Christians. And it wasn't long and we began to become mechanical about spiritual things that really do have value and meaning, but just doing them out of form mechanically rather than seeing the spirit of life behind it. And sometimes our Christian life is just that, just a big, dull routine. And we want to try to prevent that. So we talked about that. And then we talked about the matter of paraphernalia. One of the big problems that we have when we, when we come into the Christian life is we drag a lot of junk with us, don't we? Things that really, you know, the salesman told us they were necessary. And so we we bought them. And then when we became Christians, we didn't know quite what to do with them. And we find ourselves so bogged down with all of this paraphernalia that we really don't know, um, we don't know how to get rid of it. It just is kind of a cumbersome thing. And if God wanted to to call you to the mission field, you'd say, but what will I do with all my stuff? (laughs) Too much stuff. And so we talked a little bit about that. Now, those are some of the things we're talking about. And we want to talk about another one of those tonight. I remember years ago reading a little poem that said, Procrastination is my sin. It gives me endless sorrow. I really must deal with it. In fact, I'll start tomorrow. Now, we tend, as those that are saved by grace, we tend to fall back into the old patterns of saying manana to the very important things in your spiritual life. It's a trick of Satan. But it's also a habit of life that's carried over from the old life. Just postponing the most important things in life. Now, when we think of the unbeliever, we obviously have to think in terms of his postponing uh, the appointment he has with God face-to-face in terms of salvation. Uh, we've just been hearing for the last three weeks about people who, who give uh, excuses why they don't want to accept Christ as Savior. And you're to discern uh, whether they have a real argument with God or whether they're just making, making an excuse. And, and uh, you... Uh, have been trained now over the last three weeks to respond to people by giving uh, real answers to some of their questions and so on. But this uh, 
matter of postponing the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is far greater most of the time than merely a doctrinal hang-up. Occasionally you find somebody who really does have a doctrinal hang-up. But generally, it's, it's a matter that a person begins to evaluate as an unbeliever his frame of reference. And he looks into what he believes to be the Christian's frame of reference and he says to himself, "How it just doesn't fit. I mean, I can't both do this and do that. And I, I'm not sure how I'm going to get out, get all of, I, how I'm going to live like a Christian and still do all the things I'm already doing. I, I don't have time to work it all out. You see, because the unbeliever is prone to procrastination on important things, such as spiritual things, because the natural man, the non-Christian, views time totally different from the way a Christian does, or I should say, the way a Christian should. He views time totally different. Um, Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, the Phillips translation, said this, this world is the limit of their horizon. You see, they can see that far and no further. And the Christian, of course, should have this broad perspective. Everything that happens here happens with a, with a, a point toward eternity, toward that which is eternal in nature. So that when the Lord Jesus Christ was here on earth, he was saying, I didn't come to do my will. I didn't come to do what I wanted to do. I came to do the Father's will. I came to do the thing that matters as far as eternity is concerned. Christ, by man's evaluation, would be a loser. Because so much of what people might deem would be his opportunity here was cut short by the fact that he got himself crucified, see? A three-and-a-half-year ministry wasn't nearly a, a, a long enough for a man of that incredible talent. That's the way the unbeliever would look at it. But you know, the marvelous thing is this, that Christ, in his lifetime of 30-plus years, did everything that God wanted him to do. So when it was done, he could say, I'm finished. And the marvelous thing was that the same thing happened with the Apostle Paul. He could say, I've finished my course. I'm finished. I can die in peace. Because I am finished. I've completed what God had given me to do. Now, the unbeliever can't understand this at all. And I think the average believer can only think of it in part. So the unbeliever has this terrible, terrible frustration. He sees time as a limited series of moments. Every believer, I mean every unbeliever, will sooner or later admit that time is running out. That he only has a limited number of moments. And most unbelievers want to get the most out of those few moments they have. But they've got to cram it all in here, for here, because that's where they're stuck. And they can't get out of that frame of reference. They can't get into the eternal. They can't see how that figures. Because all they can think of is time. And so they postpone the important things that have to do with eternity. Because they're locked into this time frame. Now, 
The goals of the individual here depend entirely on the person. Usually, though, even people that do great things have selfish motivations behind them. They're doing them because they get satisfaction. They do it because they get pleasure. And they, they may even help others, but they primarily do it in order to gratify themselves because the unbeliever has a basically selfish heart. And because there is a, a tendency to discount anything beyond life and almost totally ignore anything that is eternal, the individual has no perspective as far as the importance of these hours and days here. So he'll naturally live for himself, right? He'll naturally think of his, think of his family, his job, his future, his retirement, all of that. Because any intelligent person knows he, quite frankly, does not have time to do both his will and God's will. And immediate frustration sets in for that unbeliever because he says, God's got all of these things he wants me to do. I accept him as Savior, and I'm going to have to do that, and I can't do this. I obviously don't have time for both, and I'm going to have to make a great decision. I am saying goodbye to my life and my desires, and I'm saying hello to a brand new life that I know nothing about. You understand his frustration? Now, in the book of Acts chapter... 24, verse 25, we read that Paul reasoned. Now, he's, he's talking to Felix here. And he reasoned, listen to the way he's talking. He reasoned of righteousness. Righteousness. And temperance or self-control. Discipline. Righteousness, discipline, and judgment to come. And what Felix's response was? Go thy way for this time when I have a more convenient season, I will call for thee. I can't fit it into my time schedule. It doesn't fit. You don't understand. I'm a king. I'm a busy man. I have to get up in the morning and put in my time, and I do that every day, and as I can see it, I'm in the loop, and I can't get out. Absolutely no way of escaping. And you're telling me to drop it all and to step into a new life, to, to, to quit being unrighteous and be righteous, to quit being, being uh, uh, wishy-washy and have self-control, to, to quit thinking about the here and now and think in terms of eternal judgment. You don't know what you're asking. I just don't have time now. I came and discuss it with you. I've got another appointment. See you later. That's the frustration of Felix. And then you have in Acts 17, verse 32... Again, when Paul was speaking this time about the resurrection from the dead, it says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, some just made fun of it, and some said, We will hear thee again of this matter. You've got my interest. You've got my curiosity. I'm not ready to say yes. I just want you to know that maybe later. That's procrastination. Putting it off. One of the things we have to do when we use one of Walt's terms, sell the gospel, is we have to convince people, hey, it's worth it. <laughs> it's worth giving up the time frame that you're used to, stepping into a new life, because it's going to be a life of fulfillment. 
It's going to be a life that is pleasing to God, and it's going to be a life that has eternal value. We've got to break through this somehow and get the gospel to them. You see, the message to the, the unbeliever, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That day of salvation may pass. And if a person rejects and postpones the decision that they must make, then they will ultimately postpone it to their everlasting shame. Now, you see where my burden is in terms of the unbeliever. My point, though, is not the unbeliever, because I'm inclined to think that most of you here tonight are believers. And whereas I'm very, very concerned about that unbeliever who, through procrastination, keeps putting us off as far as a decision for Jesus Christ, I'm intensely concerned about that. I am also very, very concerned about Christians who carry this procrastination into their Christian life. Now, again, the habits of the old life persist in the new life. Just because we are used to responding a certain way to certain stimuli. And the result is that under certain circumstances, people postpone eternal things for the sake of things that are locked in time and have no eternal purpose. They procrastinate the most important things in their life. We are not doing it willfully, but often we respond just like an unbeliever does and then regret it and after, after it's too late. And then we resolve that we're going to do better only to fall into the same pattern again and again and again. Again, what we need to learn to do is to put off the old man with its deeds, put on the new man, which in the likeness of God is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In this case, there must be a deliberate laying aside of the postponing of things that are going to develop me as a believer in Jesus Christ, bringing me to maturity and bringing me to a closer walk with Him. We have to put aside, lay aside, procrastination. But what is it to procrastinate? Again, it's a matter of falling into the old habit of what I like to call natural time evaluation. Natural time evaluation. Again, I say it probably for the fourth time tonight. You do not have enough hours and days in your life to do both your will and God's will. You just don't. You only have enough moments, enough fleeting seconds to do His will. As one that I trust at least most of the time is, am committed to the will of God, I can say there's a lot of personal joy and pleasure in doing His will. Believe me, it's not a dull life. It's not a dull routine. There's a lot of exciting things that happen along the way. But my beloved friend, will you begin to grasp it? The problem that we so often have in postponing maturity in Christ, postponing getting really with it in terms of serving Him, really witnessing for Him, really being involved in the lives of people, getting involved in discipling others, getting involved in teaching God's Word, getting involved in all of these things that some of us have been putting off and putting off and putting off and putting off, thinking, well, maybe later, but right now I... And you begin to get locked into the things that don't really matter as far as time, or, time is concerned, and you're postponing 
those things that God has ahead of us. From the point of salvation to the end of life, we only have enough time to do the will of God. There are not enough hours to do anything else. Christ said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. The night cometh when no man can work. Why was Christ so intense in his ministry? Because he could see the end of life and then could see beyond into eternity and see how he spent his time here would affect forever things out here, namely our salvation. So his attitude was, was that of total selflessness. Even the Son of Man pleased not himself. Therefore, you are not to please yourself, but you are to please God first and then please your neighbor for the purpose of edifying him. And it's a, it's a life of self-denial, saying no to self, saying no to worldly lusts, saying no to the world system and its gravitational pull, turning your back upon things that are going to be consuming time when you don't have time to consume. You know, some people kill time. Some people uh, waste time. God wants you to invest time. And every waking hour, there should be time logged in serving Him and doing His will. And even the sleeping hours should be a time where your subconscious mind is actively worshiping Him because you went to bed right with God. Every moment of every day should be spent for Him. Horatius Bonar said it this way, "'Tis not for man to trifle. Life is brief, and sin is here. Our age is but the falling of a leaf, a dropping tear. We have no time to sport away the hours. All must be earnest in a world like ours. Not many lives, but only one have we. One, only one. How sacred should that one life be, that narrow span, day after day filled up with blessed toil, hour after hour still bringing in new spoil." There has to be a total commitment to the will of God. Remember the Apostle Paul said we're to redeem the time. Buying up the moments. Ephesians 5, or Ephesians 4, he, he, it is 5, he tells us uh, that we're to redeem the time. And then he tells us how. Understanding what the will of the Lord is. It's the only way you can redeem time. And he goes on and talks more about that in that text. Now, to accomplish that, it's totally necessary for us to appropriate all that God has provided for us. And believe me, my friend, it's all there. All of the riches in Christ. But everything that God has given us, though it's in a sense in the storehouse, is not appropriated until you start to draw it out. The strength that Christ gives is marvelous and abundant, but it's not really valuable to you unless it's operative in your life. The supply that God has when he says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, that supply is stymied so often by the fact that the Christian is not willing to write a check on his account. The account is secure. The account is there. But the Christian has to appropriate it. 
And what happens is that here he's, he's living a, a wishy-washy, namby-pamby, uh, emaciated Christian life, struggling on and on, on uh, just uh, afraid to, to take any step of faith, afraid to write a check, and he keeps postponing it, keeps postponing it, keeps postponing it. Procrastination. He puts it off. He doesn't make his personally what God has said is his because really of unbelief. Now, when you're living in victory and maturity down the line, most will at least briefly, you shouldn't dwell on it, but at least briefly, you'll look back over your life and you'll say, oh my goodness, why didn't I get with it sooner? Would you just believe me that that's what's going to happen? As you take that new step spiritually, as you conquer in the name of Christ, as you see his supply brought to you, as you learn to trust him anew and afresh in the many vicissitudes of life, as you learn to suffer according to the will of God, you go through those experiences and, and, and you're, you're finally at that place of maturity. And then you look back over all of life's experiences and you say, oh my, what a waste. What a waste of time. Life with Christ on the throne of my life, Christ at the helm, Christ in control, is such a great life. It's, it's, so, it's so victorious, it's so peaceful, it's so joyful, it's all of these things. Oh, I wish somebody would have taken me ten years ago and shaken me and said, why don't you get with it? You know? But we keep postponing it, keep putting it off. Why do we put it off? The time factor. We're so busy doing the things that don't matter for eternity, we don't have time to develop in our lives the things that God gives us in time so that eternity is quality for us as well. We do not live with eternity's values in view. We allow Satan to switch the price tags of the things of this world and just because it's got a big price tag, we think it must be a great product. I was in a store one day a specialty store and uh, everything in there was higher uh, but there were some items that they carried that I was interested in and I was looking at them but uh, a woman came in and uh, she said why I saw that item down at uh, what Macy's or some other store a department store a large department store and it was it was $5 cheaper. And the proprietor, who had a rather good sense of humor, he, he said, oh, ma'am, he said, that's simple. Said, Down there, those are seconds. <laughs> she paid five bucks more for the same product. If you believe the guy, walked out. I, I, I told him after she left, I said, you're a scoundrel. That's all you are, you're a scoundrel. He said, if she's dumb enough to believe it, I'm dumb enough to say. You know, he wasn't by any means a Christian. And, had no scruples, but but you know Satan does the same thing. He convinces you that this stuff out here, those that's pie in the sky by and by. And you don't want to waste the little bit of time you have here thinking about the pie in the sky by and by. There's not enough time for that. You only go around in life once, so you gotta grab all the gusto you can. It's all gotta happen here because this is all there is. Oh no. My friend, there's heaven and there's hell. 
There's a heaven to gain. There's a hell to be shunned. And what you do and how you log your time here in time is going to determine the quality of eternity. Now, this is really illustrated by the nation of Israel. The people of Israel had been in the wilderness for 40 years, um, waiting for an entire generation to die out. And um, in referring to that incident at Kadesh Barnea, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 says, Today, notice the emphasis, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the days of provocation in the wilderness. And then the text goes on and points out that the people of Israel uh, could not enter into what God had provided because of their own unbelief. They had refused stubbornly to enter into their possession. And so they perished in the wilderness with, with receiving only a fraction of the blessing that God intended for them. It's a beautiful illustration of the Christian life if you understand that crossing the Red Sea is a beautiful picture of salvation so that the people of Israel in that sense were saved, that is, saved from the world, saved from Egypt, sent into the wilderness where God marvelously supplied for them. And God in mercy, even after their disobedience, continued to supply. It wasn't as though God forsook them in the wilderness. You know, their shoes didn't wear out. Their, their food supply was adequate. Six days a week they received manna, and the sixth day they received a double portion, or the uh, Friday they received a double portion for the Sabbath on the seventh uh, day, and uh, so that they had plenty to eat. Uh, God was gracious to them. If God had wanted to speed the process up, he could have uh, killed them all off in one fell swoop. It wouldn't have taken 40 years. But there are a lot of Christians who kind of live in that world. They get God's manna and say, thank you, Lord, every morning. And they, uh, uh, their shoes don't wear out, and they get a few of those piddling blessings, but it's not the milk and honey that God intends. And so a whole generation lost out. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us, today, as a warning, today, don't let unbelief rob you of going into the blessings that God has already given you. What did, what did uh, God say to the people of Israel? Go into the land. It's yours. I promised it. And I give it to you. You step across that Jordan in my will. You know, this crazy people. You know, they're so crazy. They're so much like us. They, God said, go in. Joshua and Caleb said, we're well able to do this. The giants are, are, are putty in our hands. We've got God. And it's not an impossible task. The ten said, it's an impossible task. We can never do it. Joshua and Caleb saw God. And uh, the others saw only the giants. And the difference was those that could look at the circumstances and those that could take the long look and see the eternal value. That's all it was. And the people said, when God said, go in, they said, no. So then God said, all right. It's decided you're going to wander in the wilderness. They said, we don't like that. We're going in. God said, you better not. And we're going in. See, when God said go in, they said no. When God said don't, they said yes. That's how stubborn they were. They tried in the energy and power of the flesh without God to go in and possess their possessions. And they were utterly defeated. They could never do it. But the people of Israel foundered in the wilderness during that entire time until a generation died off. 
Now, the 40-year probation is over with. And Moses lays out to these people their tremendous possessions. Now, if you'll turn to Deuteronomy 33, I want you to just kind of take a quick look at some of the things that God said here. This is Moses' swan song. It's his last word. This is the end. He's about ready to go up to Mount Nemo and go home to be with the Lord. And he's talking about the great King Jehovah, Yeshurun, and how he's going to supply for these people. If you look if you look in verse 3, it says, Indeed, he loves these people. We're in God's heart. All his holy ones are in his hand. We're in God's hand. And they followed in his steps. We're at his feet. And later on, you'll see one tribe in particular. We're under his everlasting arms. So the Lord has us surrounded. But in the process, he begins talking about the individual tribes and some of the blessings that would be theirs. May Reuben live, verse 6. May Reuben live and not die, nor his men's be few. Men be few. He's going to be successful. The number of men in a tribe would indicate the success of that particular tribe, the way the Jews reckoned it. Therefore, Reuben was going to live and not die. He was going to, and the word really means more than just to be alive. There's some people that are alive but really are kind of dead, you know. But it means to live to the full. Hey, to live to the full, to be successful. All right. Verse 7, and regarding Judah, he said, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With his hands he contended for them, and may thou be help against his adversaries. He's going to be supported by God. God is going to give him victory. Verse 8, this is a long one. Of Levi, he said, Let thy thummim and thy urim be, belong to the, thy godly man, whom thou dost prove at Massa with whom thou dost contend at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them, and he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed thy word and kept thy covenant. They shall teach thine ordinances to Jacob and thy law to Israel. They shall put incense before thee. Now the thing with Levi was that they were going to have the joy of service. And then it goes on. And it, it says, O Lord, bless his substance and accept the work of his hands. Shatter the loins of those that rise up against him and those who hate him, so that they may not rise again. Of Benjamin, we go on to Benjamin. May the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him, who shields him all the days and dwells between his shoulders, God's shoulders holding him up. Of Joseph, who got the double blessing, there is uh, the superior blessing that's going to come to him. Several verses listed down there and then you come to Zebulun and, and you come to Issachar and it, it says concerning Zebulun you're going forth Issachar in your tents they shall call peoples to the mountain there shall they offer righteous sacrifices they shall draw out of the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand fascinating thing did you know that the land of Zebulun is centered in Haifa Bay which is one of the great ports of the Mediterranean and Zebulun, uh, that's Zebulun, but uh, uh, Issachar is more out in the sand and it's the one place in Israel where there is an adequate oil supply. All right? So God says that they're going to draw the from the abundance of seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. It's a prophecy concerning these people. They prosper. Now, you can go on and on and on with all of these tribes, all 12 of the tribes given here, 
And all of them have been promised tremendous, tremendous blessing. They've been promised strength. They've been promised supply. They've been promised uh, the, the uh, satisfaction. They've been promised security. They're, they're promised that they're going to be sustained. All of these tribes were given an inheritance in the land. Moses says, you're about ready to go. And he gave an individual blessing to each one of these tribes, sometimes putting two together, sometimes giving a similar blessing to one or the other. But nevertheless... There was tremendous blessing that they were going to have. All they had to do was go in in the name of the Lord, believing in, in their leader, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah, uh, their banner, Jehovah Nissi, and step forward into that land and possess their possessions. All right? That's all they had to do. Now, turn to Joshua chapter 18. Joshua chapter 18. They're in the land. They've already had some major victories. They're already, it has been a relative uh, conquering of the land. But it says in chapter 18 of Joshua, beginning at verse 2, these words, And there remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes. How many tribes are there? Twelve. What's seven twelve? Seven, seven out of the twelve tribes. What does it say? Who had not divided their inheritance. That's just a nice way of saying they hadn't appropriated the blessing that was promised to them. And the next verse says, So Joshua said, Joshua said to the sons of Israel, How long will you put off? How long will you procrastinate? How long will you postpone entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you. Here they had the power of God himself. They had the precedence of victory after victory after victory. Every time God was in control of their armies, the armies won. There was no question about the fact that they could possess their possessions. They just hadn't gotten around to it. They just had been postponing it. They had just been saying manana. They'd been putting it off. And Joshua rebukes them and says, How long are you going to do that? Well, now, have you ever thought of what we have in Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want you to look at just one verse here. I want you to know that the context here has to do with giving financially, all right? And the application of that is primarily to giving, but it is also a principle of secondary application that it's referring really to everything that God might give us, everything that he might supply. It's not, not limited only to the matter of financial. If you want to apply it financially, you can be correct. If you want to apply it emotionally, you still can be correct, all right? What does it say? And God is able. He has the power, dunamis. He has the, the dunamis, the inherent power, to make all grace abound to you, that all ways, how often? Always having 
all sufficiency. In King James has it, all things. The New American Standard broke up the monotony by putting everything. But it still is that panta phrase that gives to us another all. It is the God who is able to make all grace, all ways, all sufficiency in all things that you may have an abundance, an overflow. For how many good deeds? Well, every or all good deeds. Whatever you need, you've got. You need power? You've got power. You need victory? You've got victory. You need money? You've got money. You need, you need emotional strength? You've got it. It doesn't make any difference what it is. You've got the supply for it. I uh, fascinated, really, with that word sufficiency. They're really, in the Greek uh, language, there are two words for sufficiency. H-I-K-A-N-O-T-E-S. Hikantos, uh, totes, it's, it's a word that uh, really means ability. Or you could say competency, all right? Sufficiency in the sense that the person is competent. But that word is not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is the word A-U-T-A-R-K-E-I-A. And that word describes a perfect state of life in which no additional aid or support is needed. Nothing else is necessary. The word was used in Stoic literature to depict one that was totally and completely independent of his external circumstances. It's the word that was used by the Apostle Paul when he says, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. You can't add any more. You can't give me any more. That's why he said to the Philippian people, he said, I'm already full to overflowing and I already have sufficiency so that your giving, though it's a blessing to you, really, I'm grateful for it, but I want you to understand that if you hadn't given it, God still would have taken care of me and I would have had everything I need and more because I've always got everything I need. That's what he's saying. He's trying to be nice and at the same time let these people know the facts of life. Because Paul did not have an earthly perspective. He had an eternal perspective. And he had received everything that he needed from God's hand. And he didn't, he didn't have to have anybody else. And so he tells them, it's a good thing you do. It's good for you. It's good for the development of your spiritual life. But if you think by sending that, somehow you could help me out, I got news for you. There's no way anybody could help me out because I'm already out. I've got everything I need and no one can add to that. I'm full to the overflowing and I can't have any more. Now you see what it means here in 2 Corinthians where Paul is talking about this matter of all sufficiency. He is saying that the Christian has that level of sufficiency. God doesn't have to give you anything else. When Christ said it is finished, he closed the chapter, closed the book. In a sense, God put in the bank for every single person everything he would ever need to live the Christian life and live with him throughout the countless ages of eternity. 
which just makes it so ridiculous that we, we live a defeated life so often. Why? Because we just don't act in faith upon what we have and draw from his resource. We postpone it. We say, one of these days I'll be like the Apostle Paul. One of these days I'll be like some great preacher. One of these days I'll be as patient as so-and-so. Don't you think God has enough patience for you right now? He's already given it to you. But you have to appropriate it. What's the difference between appropriate and not appropriating? The difference is whether you lock yourself into the time frame doing your thing, doing, living your life to please yourself, or whether you step into that glorious freedom that we have in Christ where we live to please Him. We discover an inexhaustible fountain of supply unless we're slack to possess it. We procrastinate. Now, if you want to find out all that's yours, go to God's Word. You see, it's good, if you're going to write a check on a bank, it's good to know what's in there, right? So you're not going into it blind. That's why you spend time in this book, and you can't overdo it. This book has inexhaustible treasures. There are at least 36 things that God did the instant you accepted Christ as Savior. Instant you accepted Christ. Dr. Lewis Perry Schaefer found 34. There are a couple of others that he didn't mention that, you know, you, can, you could add to that list. But 36 things, and that has to do with that moment of salvation, at the point of salvation. Now I just wonder, how many of you know what they are? Some of you may have studied with, them, studied with us on those 36 things a few years ago. We were doing a series. Some of you can remember at least some of them. But you know, you're sanctified, you're justified, you are given eternal life, you are brought into the plan of, of God, you become his workmanship. There, there is a multitude of things that he has given us. We should know those. Not just so we can quote them, not so we can pigeonhole them, but we should know them and know the doctrines behind them and know the flow of Scripture that gives to us all of these things. Now that's only, the, the instant you were saved, all of that was given to you. But we also, at the instant of salvation, were given working capital. All right? Over 7,000 promises that God has given us for time that have to do with now. You just appropriate one a day, you know, you're going to use up a few years before you get to the end of the list. And then you can start over because you will have forgotten. You can't begin to exhaust the supply. That's why Peter called them great, exceeding great and precious promises that are given to those that believe. You're given those promises. It's a lifetime to discover what they are. But even after that, then God slips us into the unknown realm of eternity. And he gives us literally hundreds of promises that have to do with out there. The promise of reward, the promise of the presence of Christ, the promise of a new body. You've got an aching body that doesn't work right. Hey, don't worry too much about it. It's a throwaway bottle. He's got a new body for you. We had a little fellow that grew up during his high school years here at Valley. They now, the family has moved to Oregon but he is an epileptic. 
and had one grand mal seizure after another. He would come to youth choir when I back in the days where I was leading the youth choir, and um, he would lay down and have his fit on the floor with the kids, and then bounce to his feet and keep singing. We just kept going. We were so we were so accustomed to it all the time. He used to tell me. He says, "You know, these don't bother me at all." He says, "You know," he says, "He says I got this little piece called time." And he says, I'm going to have these seizures till the day I die, and I may die at any seizure. I never know. But then he said, I get a resurrection body, and that's forever. And he was able to live with the, the agony of his condition better than most by far. Because, you see, this was temporary. It was really temporary. And you can, you can hold on if you know it's temporary. If you know it's not going to last forever. You can hold on to almost anything, can't you? But when you look into the eternal realm, God has given us a multitude of things available there. He's only given us a pittance of what it really is. We couldn't stand it if he told us all that was involved in eternity. He's given us all of that. And beloved friend, you have the privilege of knowing what you have in the bank. Unless you postpone learning about it. Do you begin to understand why I am in dead earnest about teaching God's Word? Why I'm not satisfied to just preach a Sunday morning message, a Sunday night message, and let it be at that. I've got to, I've got to do everything I can to tell you what you got, to tell you what you can appropriate in Jesus Christ, and to encourage you, yes, even challenge you, to appropriate it to write a check on it, to live as though you got it, because you do, right? But you see, the appropriation, the learning, is not the appropriation. There are a lot of people that learn to pigeonhole doctrine, and they learn 36 things that God has done for them, and they learn 7,000 promises, and they learn hundreds of promises that have to do with eternity, and if you ask them, they could give it to you. Chapter, verse, and all of the theological implications. And they live defeated lives. You know why? Because the appropriation of it is by faith. It's by faith. You've got to take the steps of faith, believing God. And in order to do that, you have to, you have to know that He is reliable. You have to get to know Him better. You know when you first came to Valley Church and maybe heard me preach for the first time. You probably sized me up like most people would. You didn't know exactly whether you could trust what I was saying or not. Because uh, you probably heard some things you hadn't heard before. So you maybe went home like the Bereans and studied the scriptures to see if these things be so. Over a period of time, we've built something of a relationship, haven't we? And you know that I don't say anything unless I've studied it out. And that it, to the best of my human ability, with a finite mind and all the rest, that I am seeking to teach truth. Simply allowing God's Word to speak through me. Right? And the more you have gained confidence in that, though I would never want you to be smug about it, I always want you to be a Berean, nevertheless, you got, you got to the place where at least most of the time 
you feel you can trust me, right? Well, now, that's a very earthly illustration of something that is far greater, and it's this. You've got to get to know God. People want to know, how can I learn to live by faith? And I'll tell you right now, getting to know God greatly enhances your ability to trust Him. You've got to know Him. And people tend to postpone, to procrastinate, in regard to getting to know God on an intimate level. Really getting to know God. Having a, a deep prayer life, a deep life of meditation, a deep life of letting God's Word speak to you personally and individually. And you'll never be able to appropriate all that you have successfully until you believe God for them. And you'll never be able to believe God like you want unless you get to know God so that you understand how trustworthy He really is. My friends, you can trust Him. David Livingston used to say, it's the word of a gentleman. <laughs> you can trust Him. And when you trust Him, then you see, you see the giants and you're a Joshua instead of one of the other spies. You say, those impossible things do not take into account a supernatural God. What's the barrier before you tonight? What's the thing that's insurmountable as far as you're concerned? Have you taken into account a God of glory, a God of power, a God of might, a God of strength? Have you taken into account a supernatural God Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. And he will do what no other power can do. Beloved, I want to challenge you tonight. Like the writer of the Hebrews, Beloved, let's go on. Always forward, always onward. Progress, progress, progress. Keep moving. Keep moving with an eye to glory. Don't get hung up by the fact that time tends to press in upon us and crowd out the things that some people think can be postponed into eternity because what you do in time is going to matter in eternity. Don't procrastinate. Getting to know God, getting to know God's Word, and living a life of appropriation by faith of all of those things that he has given to us. We have no business being less than going on and growing on, living godly lives and lives committed to him. He'll do it if you let him, if you don't block it through unbelief. Don't procrastinate, all right? Let's keep moving for God. Father, thank you for just this opportunity to, to talk about these things. Lord, it's so easy to fall into the patterns and habits of a life that, that really comes from the old life. Help us to put those things aside. <clears throat> Help us to set before us the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Go on with you in reaching those goals that you've set before us. 
Thank you, Father, for these things. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.